This is The Big Question, where we do our best to answer questions from young disciples at Grace Presbyterian Church and to be at peace with the mysteries that we can't explain. I'm Pastor Mark, your host, and in this episode we have questions from Julian, Emmeline, Israel, Joanna, Sam VR, and Levi. First, we'll tackle a few serious questions, then we'll look at this episode's big question, and we'll wrap things up at the end with a few fun questions. Let's start with our serious questions. Our first question comes from Julian. He asks, Do you have to feel bad about a sin to be forgiven? I've committed some sins, like taking an extra cookie, that I know are sinful and wrong, but I don't actively feel bad about doing them. Will God forgive me for a sin I don't feel bad about? Julian, let's put it this way. There is no forgiveness without repentance. And repentance requires us to grieve for our sins and turn from them. It's not enough to know that something is a sin. Plenty of people say to themselves, I know it's wrong, but I love it and I'm going to do it anyway. If they never come to the point where they grieve for that sin and turn from it, then no, there would be no forgiveness. However, you asked whether you have to feel bad, and that's a little bit different. Obviously, grieving is something we equate with feeling bad about something. So in some sense, yes, we should feel bad about our sin. But forgiveness doesn't depend on how bad you feel. In other words, it's not true that the worse you feel, the more forgiven you are. Oftentimes, we regret our sinfulness, but we struggle to feel as we should about particular sins. When you're in this situation, pray that the Spirit will help you come to a proper feeling about what you've done. A person might be forgiven of his sins, but not feel the full weight of guilt that they should inspire. That, too, is part of the blindness of sin and our ongoing struggle against it. The Spirit working in us helps us see clearly in time. So you may find that the full sense of grief comes later. And now Emmeline asks, why did Jesus curse the fig tree? We haven't gotten to this incident yet in Matthew's gospel. It comes in Matthew chapter 21. But we have been talking recently about the way that trees are used in scripture, uh, both literally and symbolically. And this is a good example of both, where a literal tree is cursed and it has a symbolic significance. The tree represents the people, and just as the tree should bear fruit, the people should live righteously. Psalm 1 compares the righteous man to a tree planted by the water, bringing forth fruit in its season. Now, the fig tree should be producing figs, and the people of Israel should be producing righteousness. Instead, their rejection of the Messiah is unrighteous, and the penalty of unrighteousness is death. The curse on the tree echoes the curse on humanity because of sin. As Jesus is about to go to the tree of the cross and sacrifice himself to roll back that curse on sin, his judgment on the fig tree marks the end of the old temple system and the beginning of a new era, the high priesthood of Jesus.
Now it's time for the big question. Our big question this week comes from Israel. Let's give him a round of applause. Here's Israel's question. Were the wise men really wise men or were they kings? Israel, just a few days ago on January the 6th, we celebrated Epiphany, which is the day in the church calendar when we commemorate the revealing of Jesus to the wise men. Now, the only place in the Bible where the visit of the wise men is mentioned is in Matthew's Gospel. Chapter 2 of Matthew's Gospel begins with their story. Here's what Matthew says. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and have come to worship him. You'll notice that Matthew leaves out a lot of details that we now take for granted. First, he tells us there were wise men, but he doesn't say that there were three wise men. Secondly, he says they come from the east, but he doesn't say that they were kings in the east. And he doesn't tell us their names, even though many people will tell you that their names were Melchior and Caspar and Baltazar. So if Matthew doesn't say all these things, then how do we know them? Well, the short answer is, we don't. These are just traditions that arose later, and they have no basis in history that we can confirm. I suspect that the reason that we say that there were three wise men is because Matthew mentions three different gifts that they brought to Jesus, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. That keeps things simple if we just assume that there was one man per gift, three gifts, therefore three wise men. Why do we think of the wise men, though, as kings? Well, probably because the idea of kings traveling from afar to bestow gifts at the feet of baby Jesus reminds us of the scene in Revelation 4, when the elders cast their crowns before the throne of God. You can imagine as people reflected on the story and they thought about the significance of these gifts, that the idea that these were kings could have taken hold in their mind. But Matthew's description actually gives us a better idea of who these men probably were. In Greek, he calls them magoi, a word we've carried into English as magi. Magi sounds a lot like magic, and that's no accident. The magi are magicians. Now, they're not the modern kind of magician who pulls a rabbit out of his hat, But in the ancient world, magicians were men who studied the mysteries of the world. We might think of them as part scientist, part philosopher, men who became trusted advisors to kings. So the wise men were not kings, but they were counselors to kings. Matthew says they came from the east, and if you travel eastward from Israel, you reach Babylon and Persia, and that's interesting. Because in the Old Testament book of Daniel, the young Israelite Daniel was captured and brought to serve the king of Babylon. He became a famous interpreter of prophecy and a prophet himself and an advisor to the rulers. In fact, the Bible says that he was made the chief of the Magi in Babylon. Now, later on in the days of Zerubbabel, the people in Babylonian exile returned to Israel 
But not everyone left. There were still Israelites in Babylon, still descendants of the great wise man Daniel, continuing his tradition. It's only speculation, but many people believe that the Magi in Matthew 2 were some of these men. They had been schooled in the prophecies of Daniel, and when it was time for those prophecies to be fulfilled, God gave them a sign and led them to Bethlehem. Interestingly enough, the bad king Herod receives them in Matthew 2, and then he consults his own wise men, the chief priests and scribes, to help him locate Jesus. Since the Magi were used to advising kings, it made sense for Herod to seek help from them too. But God warned them in a dream that his intentions were evil, so they went home by another route and eluded Herod. To be honest, I think this theory is even more fascinating than the later tradition that the wise men were three kings. I still love the Christmas carol, We Three Kings, and learning the truth hasn't spoiled it for me. But whenever I read the text in Matthew 2, I can't help thinking about the prophecies of Daniel and the significance of God announcing the birth of Jesus, not just in Bethlehem and Jerusalem, but in Babylon too. Before we close, let's look at a few fun questions. Uh, Our first question is actually two questions from Joanna and Sam VR, who both ask about New Year's resolutions. Joanna wants to know, what was your New Year's resolution last year and did you keep it? And Sam wants to know, what is your New Year's resolution and or have you ever had become a pastor as your resolution? Well, Joanna and Sam, I'm terrible at keeping resolutions, and so I try not to make them at all. Instead of coming up with new ideas each year, here's what I do. I use this time to review my habits and to renew my commitment to the good ones. That way, instead of keeping track of goals and beating myself up if I haven't achieved them, I can just look at my daily routines, what I'm doing physically, mentally, spiritually, and make sure I'm not neglecting things and make sure I'm looking for ways to enrich my current practices. So, no, I've never made a resolution to become a pastor, Sam. That's something God did in my life through the calling of the Spirit, not something that I ever resolved to do, which I think is as it should be. And now Levi wants to know, how many hours was your longest road trip? Levi, I've done a lot of driving over the years, but the longest continuous trip, in other words, the longest I've driven without stopping, was about 24 hours long. That was in the year 2005, when the entire city of Houston, where I lived at the time, was evacuated because of a hurricane. There were so many people on the road that the traffic quickly overwhelmed the infrastructure. We were stuck in East Texas in the middle of nowhere, and the traffic was so slow that people were getting out of their cars to walk their dogs. Now, finally, after nearly a day behind the wheel, we reached our destination, and I told Lori that if she wanted to leave Texas, we could. The very next year, we moved to Sioux Falls, and we've been here ever since. That's all for now. Thanks for listening to The Big Question. Remember, if we're going to find the answers, then we have to ask the questions. Never be afraid to ask, and never be satisfied with easy answers. The truth will stand up to scrutiny. Until next time, keep asking The Big Questions.